from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. I'm Professor Adi Weiner of the Wharton School of Business, Department of Statistics, joined in the studio this morning by my colleague from the Department of Statistics, Shane Jensen. And uh, it's a beautiful Wednesday morning. Yeah, good morning, my man. How are you feeling today? Uh, um, well, you know, he, he's asking me that with with a tone that only I truly understand because he's wearing his Red Sox cap and the Yanks are playing the Red Sox. Yeah. And the Red Sox uh, squeaked one out against the Yankees last night. And of course, that Did they? makes me feel I hadn't a little heard bit. About that. <laughs> it makes me feel a little bit uh, distressed. I've been watching a lot of baseball. I'm sure you have as well. Um, I will say before we get into baseball uh, that maybe we shouldn't because there's so much other things going on. Right now, in sports world, we have an amazing basketball yeah. finals taking place. Although we can, I really want to unpack that slowly. I'm sure you've seen some of the some of the oh, games. Oh yeah, it's um, been fantastic. Yeah, we can we can hold baseball until a little later and talk uh, talk some NBA, talk some NHL. What's happening in the NHL playoffs is pretty amazing too. There's NH- NHL. We have a couple of uh, we have uh, the French Open going on right now. I don't think that's quite as exciting as what's going on in the NH- NHL, and or as sort of interesting it's, it's as what's going to, on in it's, basketball. It's, it's hard. Compete with finals. <laughs> <laughs> it really is hard to compete with finals. But this is Wharton Moneyball, and we're on every Wednesdays from 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. on Sirius XM 111, and we're replayed throughout the week. If you'd like to, um, uh, if you'd like to contribute or ask a question or, or um, just call in, we you can call us in at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six x six six. Or you can email us at businessradiosiriusxm dot com, and you can follow us on Twitter at bizradio one one one. So if you'd like to ask a question, talk about the finals, talk about any of these sports we're going to cover this morning. Um, in the first half hour, we'll be. Open lines. Uh, Shane and I will be chatting about the various uh, events uh, this of this past week and coming up into into the week. And in our last half hour, we'll be doing more of the same. In the middle, we have a couple of very interesting guests. We have an expert on tennis analytics um, and an expert on basketball and soccer analytics. And we'll be hearing from them at eight thirty and at nine o'clock, um, respectively. So let's start by talking about the basketball finals. Yeah. So I th- th- think Golden State can go sixteen and zero. That's actually, not what we're talking about. Instead of them actually like this final series being competitive, now we're talking about whether or not they just sail through perfect in the playoffs. We are talking about that. So let's let, let me unpack some statistics for our listeners to get to get a sense of where the controversy was because there kind of was a controversy if we had Eric with us. So our, our usual um, uh, co-hosts in the studio are Eric Bradlow and Cade Massey. Um, they are away this week. Um, Eric has had very, very... Um, I would say, uh, pronounced thoughts about the basketball. In particular, he's a huge fan of LeBron James. It's not that we are not, yeah. but the diversity of, of thought about the finals was essentially two directions. In fact, a great ESPN colonist wrote, no matter what happens, you have to say you saw it coming. Right. Because the analytics people were arguing this was a slam dunk for the Warriors. Yeah. They were Their forecast was over 90% from the start, and it's right now at 97%. Which I always thought myself, personally, was kind of ridiculous. Like, I was a proponent of, I mean, you know, it's it's certainly looking like long odds for, uh, you know, for, for Cleveland now. Was but it last I, year. But, well, well, <laughs> but, I mean, like, you know, I, I go, the fact that going into the series, like, let's back up to where this these last two games haven't happened in our minds, if we can. Um, 
you know, they they had like Cleveland at like something like fifteen percent to win the finals, and I thought Who that did? was uh, the, the Vegas odds. It wasn't okay, just so, the anal- analytics. Uh, people. Wait, hold on, let's, let's back off. Actually, much much higher. Really, the opening at the start of the series at the start of the series was minus two forty for the Warriors. So minus two forty to convert that. That means if you bet two hundred two hundred and forty dollars yeah. on the Warriors, you win a hundred. Now the the very nice formula to help turn that into a probability is two forty divided by two forty plus a hundred. So two forty over three forty is their probability. Now of course that adds a little bit of vig vigorish or juice um, to the to the to the Warriors forecast, but not that much. So that's something like thirty percent. Well, that's actually more in line with what I would have said. Um. Because, yeah, I mean, you know, go, going to the series, I mean, you know, they, because they did play last year, it turns out. I don't know if you heard about that. I did. And Cleveland won. I did. I so, did. So you kind of want to put Cleveland at close to 50-50 at least there. Now you add Kevin Durant onto the Golden State, As, and I mean, of course, that's going to drop Cleveland's odds. And it turns out that that actually looks like it was a pretty impactful addition. In fact, but, if you watch the game, I think oh would you God, say that that is an yeah. obvious change? Oh yeah, no, no. I mean, the way Kevin Durant is playing right now, it's it's it is it is in fact a game changer. So I mean, I, I I'm pretty I'm pretty secure in the fact that Golden State's going to win this series. Who knows though. Um, I, Who knows? I just, it's what it was. I, I it was like this two years ago. Yeah, last it, year it was yeah, two it, nothing, and, right. and then they split two games in, in Cleveland, and then of course we know what happened. In the it's end. hard to imagine a dynamic of this series changing to the extent that Golden it suddenly becomes really competitive. Because I mean, it's not just that Golden State has won every single game in this playoffs. If you look at their margin of victory, it's like <laughs> something like averaging like fifteen points. It's epic. It's it really ridiculous. Is. But I want to unpack the 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 controversy because the numbers people. Particularly, you can see it in the ELO forecast that 538 puts out, which doesn't take into account last year's playoff formula. Doesn't That's not in no. there. They just essentially look at the, the regular season and playoff margins of victories and actual victories, and they, and they integrate that into, into a model, a very simple model, more like a, a power ranking kind of model. And they have the... The Warriors, they had the Warriors at over 90% probability before the start, and now they're in excess of 97% probability. Mm-hmm. And that leaves this gaping chasm between the 90, 90 97% and the essentially 30%, which is what for the, for the Cavaliers are, are 60 or 70% for the Warriors by Vegas. And that's a huge gap. And so the question is, where does it come from? And the, it comes from. Well, there are two possibilities. One is that people are betting the Cavaliers, and if people are willing to bet the Cavaliers, and one thing that people don't know, don't really know about Vegas is Vegas actually takes positions. People think that they just balance off the money on each side, but actually they take positions, and they are taking. A, they took a position last year. They took a position that that the Warriors were going to win, and people continued to bet the Cavaliers, and they just didn't move. The odds, uh, they ended up moving the odds in, in so make it harder to win money with the Cavaliers. And people still kept betting. Right. And, and they just threw up their hands and said, you want to make a stupid bet? Make a stupid bet. Now, of course, we know what so happened. It wasn't year. so stupid. But yeah. it's repeating itself again. Yeah. So the public has decided that, <laughs> let's bet on the Cavaliers. Even well, though- I, mean, it, it's all, I mean, I don't know. If I, you know the psychology of gambling more than I do, I think. Um you know, once it gets to something like, you know, 97% or whatever the implied odds are for something like that, I mean, what's the point of betting for Golden State? Well, to make it precise, it's uh, it's $1,100 bet on the Warriors wins you 100 Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I mean, really? you know, 
I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe I don't gamble enough to like see that as a particularly strong incentive, but I would go with the long odds, man. But the long odds aren't good because in order to bet, if you want to win $100, so if you want to win $450 on the Cavaliers, you have to bet $100. And that puts, that's like... Oh, so they have not moved the odds. You're, you're talking the no, probability, no. The, the analytical probabilities have changed now, but like... Oh, no, I'm Vegas saying has, on... of course, has of course moved because it began okay. at, at 240. It began at, at Yeah, but now, now, now what are the Vegas odds? Now like, the Vegas or... odds are about 15%. Okay, so so now now you could actually win a... You could win a little bit, but yeah. it's not... A, considering how down... Uh, you're down two to nothing. I mean, it's just... Yeah. And, and the Warriors look incredible. Yeah, I mean, Cleveland's got some home games coming up. Let's it does, that, it does. Right, and, you know? and in basketball, um, basketball home games... The home you tell us about is home? pretty substantial. In fact, I think it is the most substantial yeah, of the Neil four Payne, majors. Yeah, I think, looked at this in the last, like, week or so. Um, it looked like... I mean... NFL obviously has a huge home field advantage. I don't think anybody would dispute that, especially like when weather is factored in. Um, NBA also has apparently a pretty distinct home uh, home court advantage. NHL uh, baseball do not have much of a home field advantage, at least, or at least like you know specifically, there's no extra home field advantage in the playoffs. In, did did Neil, when he did this analysis, did he control for the obvious factor that in say in basketball and football? the team that has the home field is likely to be better, particularly in the playoffs. I, I think he did. Uh, that, that was some, I, I think, I mean, it's 538, so I assume there's some ELO thing. Right, so if your listeners are thinking out there, how yeah. is it possible? I mean, I think No, that, I, mean, I mean, you know, coming into the series, I, I, you, you had something like ELO or whatever, but I mean, you know, Golden State and Cleveland had relatively... You know, similar paths, at least, through the playoffs. They, they, looked, they, they, looked, they looked almost equally dominant coming into the series. It's just clearly the last couple of games have, have shown us. Right. Well, Elo, that, that, Elo uses the whole season. Yeah. And, and given the fact that the uh, Cavaliers look so bad, and particularly the last 20 games of the they season. They had an underwhelming season. Underwhelming. Yeah. And I think the real question is defense. And I don't yeah. think they've been playing on defense any better than they've played all year, which is not very good. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, I think we're sort of seeing that, you know, I, I, I mean, Golden State even last year was probably, most people would acknowledge, was you know, the better team. It's just that, you know, Cleveland, LeBron's, you know, antics last year were enough for them to basically come back on, on Golden State. This year, they added Kevin Durant. I mean, Golden State is clearly a better team. Clearly. Okay, um, I want to ask but, you a statistical uh, interpretation of a statistic question that I got yeah. from one of our listeners, and then and, and because there's a lot of confusion in the, in the general public. So take, for example, the the ELO forecast, the 538 probability forecast, they, before the, the series began, they had, uh, they've written and talked extensively that it's about a 90% probability. And the natural inclination is to interpret that as if they were to play 10 times, the Warriors would win nine of them. Mm-hmm. And I actually think that's not the proper interpretation of what a 90% probability forecast is in this context. Just to back it up, it would be the right answer if you watched them play a thousand times and uh, and the Warriors won 900 of them. Then I would say going forward, they have a nine, they would win nine out of ten. But that's not what we have. We don't have any of that. We have a, a wholly different package of information. So what, what do you think? It, how would you interpret that for our, our listeners? What a ninety percent probability means in a in an ELO type forecast. Mm. Um, and where's the uncertainty coming from? I mean, the uncertainty is coming from just the inherent, like you know, like that. Basically, I, I interpret that nine percent forecast as like you know that there is a disproportionate, you know, kind of team ability to Golden State. And it and it kind of equals you know they've they've measured that at like you know at a ratio of like nine to nine to ten basically or something like that, and that the the, the uncertainty comes from the fact that you know even with 
two dispar- you know unbalanced teams. There's still like a lot of randomness, randomness or stochasticity sport. to the sport itself. You know, I mean, like thinking about like you know the you know the the best team in baseball playing the worst team in baseball. The, the worst team in baseball will beat the best team in baseball, what, like a third of the time? Right. You know, Which is why like no forecast in baseball would No ever, forecast in baseball. Ever have 90%. You, you, right, that's right. So, I mean, that's, that's sort of like, and now you've got two teams that they're sort of saying are essentially the two best teams in ba- basketball, but we've got a unique situation that somehow, even though we've already sort of selected out the two best teams in basketball, so that should be about as balanced as one can get. The top team in basketball is so much better than the second best team in basketball right now that they put those odds somehow at ninety percent. Right, which I think was too high going into the series. But it's so what. What, what you've identified, and I want to unpack a little bit, is there's two sources of uncertainty in in in, in the forecast of what would happen. Yeah. One is the basic stochastic, which is a fancy word for random. Uh, the stochastic nature of, sounds better. Uh, it sounds better of a uh, of an of an actual comp- sport competition. It's there's randomness. There's yep. no question. Shots go in. Shots miss. Um, stuff happens, and they're not controlled, and that creates uncertainty. But there's another piece of uncertainty that isn't stochastic in that sense. It's stochastic in the sense that, and this is what's happening here, we don't really know how much better yeah, the Warriors right. are. That, 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 it's so, an estimated ability, not an actual right. observed ability. And so one of the things that I want to make clear to, to, that the 90% forecast is, it's very it's not what you think it is. It doesn't mean that if they played 100 or 100,000 times, the Warriors will win 90%, because it's unpacking that uncertainty. And so maybe they're even teams, and we just don't know it yet. Yeah. Or maybe the Warriors are just 100% teams, and we don't know it yet. And and our data has sort of focused on those two probabilities and yeah. decided that the Warriors are being better is is uh, is better than being even. But maybe when we watch them play, we start to realize more about the quality. Yeah. And so it could be that the Warriors win 99% of the time in the, in the real world, or that maybe they win only 60% of the time in the real world. We just don't know that. And so that's what a 90% probability. Yeah. There's just two pieces of uncertainty and the answer is is that the model uncertainty is is actually I think a very big uh, driving factor in this particular series yeah. because there's so much uncertainty about the Cavaliers. Yeah, and I mean I think I, I think another sort of like thing that uh, or, or so, maybe it's not counterintuitive, but I think a lot of people are going to come out of this series. Like let's let's assume Golden State goes on to sweep Cleveland. Mm-hmm. You know that that basically things go as they have been going. A lot of people are then going to retrospectively go back and say, oh my goodness, the analysts were right. Because they had it ninety percent, whereas That's Vegas right. had it seventy percent. You know, Golden State winning this series, even sweeping this series, does not disprove no, of course that thirty percent estimate Although, for Cleveland uh, what, what versus ten percent. What would it in your eyes? Let's just let's just. Round I mean, this no, conversation. It, it would provide some evidence, especially considering it doesn't not, prove it. But what would I mean if they win in, in a sweep, winning every game by twenty? Would you be? Would you have said, you know what? That idea that the Cavaliers had a chance here was was misguided. No, I still I still even think like you know because I I, I think. Um, once I think there again, you add that extra stochasticity of 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 the actual game outcomes, right? I mean, then you know, it, it, I I don't think that Golden State. I still think Golden State was like a seventy to thirty team. Seventy to thirty. Um, you know, in in this particular finals, even if they sweep, and even if they sweep, you know, kind of in a rel- relatively, you know. Impressive fashion. Okay, well, that that that's hopeful for those interested in watching the competition as it unfolds. That there's still a lot of competition to <laughs> it, see. I, and I mean, I hope you know. I mean, it's it's. I mean, it's exciting to see what Golden State's doing. Like watching them, I, you know, you would like a little bit more you competition would like. in this. I mean, like the in the half, NBA Finals. I mean, the, the fact first that we, half was good. Of the second game, it was almost even yeah, going yeah. into the. Into yeah, no, the, and and there's been various. I mean, that San Antonio series probably would have been a lot um, uh, closer if Leonard had, had uh, stayed in. Um, 
But, I mean, I don't know whether NBA fans out there are satisfied or dissatisfied with what's happening, but it's 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 kind of what we thought would happen. It is. So if we're talking about the NBA Finals here on Wharton Moneyball, it's Wednesday morning at about 8.15. If you have thoughts on the series, do you believe the Warriors will sweep the Cavaliers and win by a lot? You can give us a call at 1-844-942-7866. That's 1-844-942-7866. And while you think about that, we're going to change gears a little bit. What's well, a natural segue to hockey, I feel uh, like. Yeah, okay. So I was going to... I was going to rant a little you bit. You were going to rant. I was going to... Uh, uh, ask Shane what he wanted to go to next. Just before we are going to go to hockey, but uh, it is a very, very interesting week. We had some incredible uh, events in baseball. We had the 600, 600 home run by, by Albert Pujols. We had a no hitter. We even had something. You even, can't stay away from baseball. I can't. I but we were, I'm just, I, I it's just a teaser. To, like, we're not going into it. I'm just telling it. We're not going into it. I'm just a teaser because yeah. something actually happened yesterday, uh, which is uh, which is uh, which is actually much more uh, actually interesting. We'll co- come around and talk about that that as well. There was a um, there was a four home run game yesterday oh. in baseball. I didn't even hear about this. And it happened late last night, and that's an incredibly unusual yeah. event. And when we'll circle back to that. There were some other amazing events that we're absolutely not going to talk about. The spelling bee that happened, and we're going to skip that. But that is really? very interesting. Uh, Shane maybe is leading us to talk about that. It was covered by the the New York Times. The the, the, the national that was quite an interesting breakdown in the New York Times spelling bee championships. We have the French Open, um, the the uh, U.S. Open in golf is coming up, and and there's one other item that I definitely do want to talk about and at some point i want to put that in your brain shane is that we had this uh this uh climber alex um i'm I hope i'm pronouncing his name right honald he climbed solo free solo el capitan mm-hmm. this is this is the the impact of this i event. take it that that is not a mountain that one typically fly climb solo okay so from, one, just just from the fact that you're bringing it up okay so when this when it was first climbed with ropes it took them 57 days Back in the 1950s, uh, just to say what a free 1950s. solo is. 1950s, we even yeah, have whatever. one. Whatever, <laughs> whatever. A free. Do we even th- have escalators back then? <laughs> escalators. So um, uh, there's free solo and free climbing, and then of course there's roped or assisted climbing. Right. Free free climbing means that you pull yourself up without the use of equipment, but you have ropes and other safety gear in place. Oh, so yeah, right. So okay. free solo means you walk up there with your shoes and some chalk. Really? That is... There's in, no safety. In, no know. safety. And, and he didn't I, even have somebody underneath to catch him. <laughs> Not at all. So I'd like to catch that, that, yeah, that, no, that we, conversation we really should talk at some about point. that, because that guy's but insane. That guy absolutely is insane. And the implications for the sport, and the, uh, in general, I think, are very yeah. interesting. But I do want to get to hockey, and this is something that... Well, um, I mean, I wanted to segue into hockey from basketball, just because, you know, I, I do have this rant about basketball being too predictable, and I still watch, and it's, been, and ex- and it's certainly basketball is exciting this year on, like, kind of a personal performance level, seeing what Kevin Durant's doing. But, you know, we knew it was going to be Golden State against Cleveland, like, six months ago. Six months ago, we did. We knew that, and we knew that, you know, and I guess we knew... But the the Penguins are the defending champs, right? I talked myself into less uncertainty, um, you know, but we kind of knew Golden State was going to win, too. All right, I agree. Basketball is is at this point far less. But no NHL. But okay, yeah. So but no the Penguins, Peng- Penguins you could have predicted in the finals, though I don't think it was a you know a particularly strong prediction. But Nashville's the eighth seed. Nashville came into the playoffs as the eighth seed. Can you imagine an eighth seed in the playoffs, NBA, even making it to the semifinals, making it out of their round? Never mind making it to the finals and being tied in the finals. So I think Nashville making it to the finals as an eighth seed. 
is a pretty amazing story. And the fact that they're basically like right there with Pittsburgh in the finals mm-hmm. is pretty amazing. So it's 2-2 right now. Who knows? I mean, you know, basically, again, contrary to what we were talking about before, home, home, home ice advantage has been pretty big in this playoffs. And now they go back to Pittsburgh. And Pittsburgh has home ice advantage in the last three games. So but- how, how does home ice advantage what causes home ice advantage in in hockey? I mean, the argument in in basketball and in in football is the crowd noise, and the crowd noise affects the play, and it affects the volume, affects the play, yeah. particularly in football, and it also affects the referees, the umpires. Yeah, and I, and I think that referee effect is is, is the main way in that which home ice advantage would 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 benefit you in hockey. And okay. I don't think it's as substantial. And I mean, like empirically, it's been shown not to be as substantial, but. I only say that it's a big deal in this particular finals only because the home team has won every single game so far. Ah, okay. So, so you're using that post-data information yeah. To, yeah. to integrate over that. Now, I actually heard a, a basketball um, kind of a, a analytical observation that was that left me um, interested. I wanted to, yeah. to get your take on it. So during the play, uh, um, one of the games was down 5-3, and the, the team that was behind brought their goalie out, which is a standard practice when you're down. And the argument so is... So fun, by the way. Which is... It's fun. Other, other, other sports really need... I mean, they don't really do that. I mean, I guess they kind of do going to do it? In what sport? How well, soccer brings the goaltender up sometimes, yeah. and that's super cool. It's rare. It's rare that that happens, though. So so the argument was is that, that, that the teams are way too conservative, and mm-hmm. they don't bring their goalie out early enough. Yeah. What's what's the, what's can you tell us about this this issue? Yeah, I mean it is true that I mean I, you know similar to kind of the you know I, I think it's the hockey version of the fourth down decision or the two point conversion decision in football. Um, you know it, it, it's you know it, almost every team will bring pull their goaltender if they're down by one or two goals near the end of the game. But they you know if you kind of calculate out the sort of change in probability, it, I have I've. If you look at the numbers, it basically most teams are doing it too late. Like you know, they they, are doing they should it do it earlier. You know, but I mean, I think there you run into kind of the same sort of risk adverseness psychology that you run into with fourth downs and two point conversions. Is that if you pull the goaltender like with five minutes left instead of two, that's an unconventional move. People are going to notice, and then if you get scored on. People are going to be like, oh, that right. was a terrible move. You, you And, you know, it's, it's the type of thing where the coach is the one that's exposed by that decision. And so the coach isn't – is I, I think there's a real kind of – coaches are not going to make unconventional decisions that kind of make them vulnerable to criticism afterwards. Better that you do the conventional thing and then the players get the blame if you lose as opposed to doing the unconventional thing and then you lose and you get the blame. So I would guess that these kinds of changes are, are still some years away. We, we in the analytic universe, have yeah. been looking at – had been looking at football and screaming, and I scream at the television yeah. when, when they when they punt on on fourth down when the obvious, absolutely obvious analytical move is is to go for it, and in, we're see, we see it in hockey. But baseball took a while to get there. I mean, we saw shifts have been around for a while, but now they're absolutely ubiquitous because yep. I mean that's the same sort of risk trade off. The idea being you're going to move your second baseman out into yeah, or yeah. your shortstop right. out, in, right. out to short right, and and then of course if the ball goes right in through the through the left side of the in, in, of the in, of the infield and there's no one there, you. It's a uh, how could it happen? Yeah, and I but... think hockey is pretty. Be- I, I mean, more generally, hockey is behind the curve on on analytics in general. In general so yeah. I, I think things like things that have a more of an analytical 
backing to them that are unconventional, I think, are being adopted more slowly in, in hockey relative to some of the other sports. I mean, obviously, basketball is light years ahead of hockey right now. Basketball is. Um, and we, some of our guests may hopefully said, shed some light on this because yeah. the new technology is this sort of sport view or camera mm-hmm. data collection. And that's the hopefully will allow analytics of soccer, of hockey, of these fast moving multi-positional games. Yeah, I that, just think basketball is, is, is further ahead. You know, in part, it, it inherently is easier. easier to say, well, well it, it, it's not quite as fast paced as hockey, um, but also there's just way more scoring events. I mean, you right. know, hockey, hockey or soccer have this tremendous disadvantage that you're trying to tease out all this kind of like in-game information that's predictive of outcome. But the outcome is even more stochastic or random um, because scoring events are so relatively rare. So we have... Uh, uh the rest of the NHL playoffs or finals yeah. um, to place. What should we look for? Um, I would, I, I would again sort of see like you know. I mean, basically at this point, it's all about whether one of these teams can break serve. To use a hockey, a uh, t- tennis analogy in hockey, um, if one of these teams can actually, like, if if Nashville can go in and win a home, uh, win an away game in Pittsburgh, um, then I think they 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 take the whole thing. But if, I mean, I, Nashville, I would love so- for it to, I would love for it to go to a game seven. So, but uh, Nashville is the underdog. Nashville pretty, is pretty, the underdog. Pretty, pretty decisively well, I, at this point. It, but well, I'm again, you know, I, it's I, I, I even odds at this even point. Odds. Yeah, I, love I, it. I mean, like now, now that we're there, I mean, certainly Nashville was a real underdog to make it to the finals. But now that we're there, I wouldn't put Pittsburgh at too much of an advantage. Okay, so there you have NHL. We have a lot of of sports to talk about. We have exciting, a, isn't it? When like there's not perfect prediction about what's going to happen. It is, and we yeah. one of the things that's sort of this has been our lament all season about basketball is that it's just been just uh, an inevitable outcome and we waited all season to to get there yep. and it it almost makes the the the, the uh, regular season exhibition like yeah it's certainly a different you know it, we kind of you know it it it's hard to get to i mean there's you know i mean in, in executives of the NBA and any and the NBA that are lamenting the fact that nobody's paying attention November and December i mean why would they? <laughs> I, mean, like, I, I wonder. Do I mean it's still a, a, enormous fun to go to a, oh, yeah. a basketball game? So oh, yeah. maybe this is just That's right. They still get attendance. People come. It's uh, it's just part oh, of yeah, no, seeing I, I sport. Mean, well, that, yeah, they're not about to shorten the season no, or something no. like that. That's just not going to happen. But Even yeah, though it, analytically I mean, we know it's too long. I mean, really, in the I think the NBA could essentially. Um, Make a couple moves to increase parity. I think that would there would, there would be you know um, I mean I've got a couple ideas about. It. I, th- I I think that's the real key is is I think the NBA is not inherently a more predictable sport or something like that. I just think right now the way you know talent is kind of distributed across teams, you've got a couple really top loaded teams that nobody can basically beat. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Now I don't want to um, to be completely remiss and in, in, in deference to to Shane. One of your favorite sports is soccer, and I believe there's been a lot of activity on the soccer f- front as Real, well. No. Real Madrid won the Champions League. So, so we have the Championships League, which was actually concluded, and that's something that we're not exactly obsessing about in the United States, but yeah. the vast majority of the world cares yeah. deeply. No, and I will a, say, a good friend of mine is a huge Real Madrid fan, so she's very excited about this. So this, so it's actually over. Yeah. Um, and, and for this year. For this year. And I think it the, starts up again in a couple weeks. And uh, tell us a little <laughs> bit about that. So what was going in, who was favored? And and do we have any? So compare, for example, we had 
the NHL, which is highly random, um, although Pittsburgh is, was the repeat winner, yeah. in, well, won last year and is in the finals again. But there's a lot of uncertainty. Makes the finals a lot of fun. How do you? How does that sort well, of stack and, up? I mean, I think. Well, uh, uh, I, I think what uh, one of the there's a couple interesting dynamics. I think to Real Madrid's victory. I mean, one of which is you know there's obviously you know I mean Yankees Red Sox is a big rivalry, and of, of course it's the type of rivalry where I not only enjoy the Red Sox winning, but a Yankee loss is almost as good as a Red Sox win to me. I mean, I'm you know okay. I'm petty that we'll way. We'll get to that. We'll get to that later. Um, for Real Madrid versus Barcelona fans, similar dynamic, right? They really do not you know like each other. They do not like each other's success, and it's therefore been kind of a frustrating decade of Real for Real Madrid because they've seen Barcelona do so many amazing things. They've won multiple Champions League finals. You know, they have ostensibly one of the best players in the world, Messi, on their team. But now Real Madrid's also got ostensibly one of the best players in the world, Cristiano Ronaldo, Ronaldo on their right. team. Um, so it's been this sort of classic back and forth, and it's really kind of, I think, that back and forth between Barcelona and Real Madrid and the disproportionate amount of success Barcelona's had has sort of colored the entire career of both Messi and Re- Cristiano Ronaldo. Um, but that's kind of turned around in the last, like, couple years. But Barcelona didn't make it to the finals. No, nope, that's right. So it's kind of turned so Juventus, around. This, I what mean, kind of team are they? And oh, they're, 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 I mean, they're very good. They've made it to the finals star? a couple times. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> so, but they don't have no, any of the superstars that we typically think of. Superstars, no. And so I think, from my, from my understanding, is they're yeah. more of a defensive team. And, and they were the underdog yeah, in, that's in the right. finals. And I, I mean, I've, they, they're, a, they're perennially up there. I mean, like, I, 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 I think Barcelona, when Barcelona won the Champions League two or three years ago, was against Juventus as well. Um, so... You know, I I, th- I think the last couple of years have been very interesting because they've really kind of a, I think we were starting to sort of think of the, thinking of the legacy of Cristiano Ronaldo. We're thinking of he's a really amazing talent. You know, one of the best soccer players on in, in the world. You know, maybe one of the best soccer players of all time. But kind of like you know this he you know there's also a lot of like hard negative to, feelings towards him to because to he's decide like you know those things in, in soccer. One of the things that's yeah. difficult about soccer is we talk about the goat, the greatest of all time in, in any sport. Yeah, and and even the greatest currently, and it's Hard to decide these oh, things. Oh well, in certainly empirically, it's yeah. incredibly difficult. I mean, really, uh, most of these evaluations are just done by people who like you know just visually. They're like, well, that guy, you know, I watched Maradona, and this guy's like that, or something like you, you know. I mean, it's the quantitative stuff, or the empirical kind of evaluation is is, is a ways off yet. I think, um, but now is you know now 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 that we 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 sort of had this sort of relatively negative legacy about Ronaldo, but now you know he led Portugal to win the Euro. Um, a couple years last year, and now you know led his team to win the Champions League. So I, Champions I think it, I think it's sort of you know we've got kind of a, a you know a real reshaping of Ronaldo's legacy as right, a consequence terrific. of the last couple of years. Terrific. We, there's there's actually a lot, potentially a lot more soccer that we could talk about, but we are going to uh, take a break. And when we come back after our short break, we will be um, interviewing an expert in tennis analytics, Stephanie. Kovalchik, who's coming to us from Australia, and that should be terrific. So stick around, and we'll see you right after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball on Sirius XM 111. I'm your host, Professor Adi Weiner of the Department of Statistics of the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania, and I'm here this morning with my colleague, also from the Department of Statistics, Shane Jensen, 
And we just spent a nice half hour talking about breaking down the big championships that are happening in uh, in basketball, which is ongoing, and in hockey, which is also ongoing, and just a few minutes talking about the Champions League in soccer, which is concluded. We also have a major tennis tournament, one mm-hmm. of the four um, ma- majors of the year. That's in, The French Open is going on right now. And in um, sync with that event, we have our guest this, uh, this morning is Stephanie Kowalczyk. She is uh, a lead data scientist at the Game Insight Group. Um, it's a great gig, G-I-G. It's actually how, how the, uh, the Game Insight Group is abbreviated, um, which is Australia's tennis governing body. And she's also a sports analytics research fellow at Victoria University. Um, and Stephanie is uh, a graduate of the uh, Caltech undergraduate and the University of Southern of California at Los Angeles' statistics department. So she is a fellow PhD in statistics, Shane, and we love to welcome Stephanie Kowalczyk to our show. So, Stephanie, nice to have you on our show. Hi, Adi. Hi, Shane. Thanks hey, for having me. Hey, how's it going? Me. It's great to have you here. Um, uh, we understand, and I want to confirm this, that you are, you are calling us from Australia? That's right. I'm in Melbourne. Well, congratulations. That's that's a you're a ways ahead. You're a ways ahead. Yeah, it's about twelve, thirteen hours. Um, so it's nice in the evening. I think for where you are, right here, it's in the morning. Um, it's a kind of a cloudy morning. How's it in Australia? It's, I'm sure it's quite beautiful. Or no, it's uh, winter. <laughs> yeah, it's not the best time of year for us, but but uh, we get by. You do get by. Well, it is of course an exciting time for tennis. It's uh, the French Open, and I know you have a, a blog and a Twitter feed that po- pops out some very in- in- interesting information. But before we get into the maybe the particulars of, of the French Open, I wanted to ask you a little bit about tennis analytics, sort of in general. Um, tennis, in, in our view, is one of the sports that is sort of later to the analytical universe. Um, so where does that stand? Yeah, I mean, that was definitely one of the reasons why I got so interested in it was to see, you know, so many of the other sports, you know, really um, making waves with analytics and just, you know, all of the ways it was changing the game um, and just kind of seeing tennis getting left behind. And, you know, I mean, there's really no reason why data and more data-driven stats can't bring the same kind of insight to tennis as it has been able to with other sports. So that's really what GIG is um, trying to do is to kind of bring tennis out of the dark ages in a way and um, and make better use of the data that's available because we do have some pretty interesting, you know, more cutting-edge data sources now, and it's just um, finding the people who want to, you know, take advantage of it and try to shake up conventional thinking. Yeah, this is uh, Shane Jensen. Um, so I, I think a, a lot of the bottleneck across many different sports, the reason some sports are being kind of, you know, uh, are, are, are a little bit uh, behind the curve uh, as far as analytics goes, is data availability. And so how, how publicly available the data is and how, you, you know, like how easy it is to use. So I don't know if that's something that do you kind of feel like that's still somewhat of a bottleneck in tennis or or yeah. are we at the point where the data is out there and we just need to kind of throw a lot of manpower so, at it? So, Stephanie, can you tell us a little bit about what data has historically been available in tennis and what is now coming online? Yeah, so, I mean, um, one of the problems, I think, with the data availability in tennis is just sort of the fractured structure of the sport itself. So it's not something where you have, like, a centralized league that can kind of make a single decision to say, okay, we're going to give up you know, all of our historical box scores and everybody will have access to it. Um, we have, you know, multiple tours. You have the ATP, the WGA, the ITF, 
they all run different events, each Grand Slam, um, the four, you know, biggest tournaments of the year are all, you know, individually um, directed. So it, it makes it more difficult to kind of have any sort of cohesive plan with sort of open data. Um, but you do, you know, see individual events will show like match summary stats at the end, and those are made available through websites. And, um, and you now, because of, you know, interest in, um, in trading and betting, I mean, there's a lot of things on the web that allow um, summary stats and match results to be available. So I'd say um, having, you know, historical data about match results um, during the open era is quite readily available. And I've actually been involved with um, trying to make that more centralized and um, providing open source software so that, you know, other folks who are interested in in doing research on the public data can um, can get to that more easily and not have to go through all the labor of the web scraping. Right. Um, so, I mean, you know, so the kind of the equivalent to box scores are definitely out there. Um, it's the more interesting data that gives us more insight into the biomechanics of the sport that comes from the camera systems that have been around since like 2006 for most major matches. That's what is more siloed still. So, no, I want, yeah. I, want to, I want to go back yeah. away a little bit because there's, of course, there's two sources of data in general. I mean, you have the, the camera, the high-end uh, stuff that you're talking about that's been siloed in tennis, and then you kind of have the box score information, which in baseball has been around for over 100 years, and in other sports are, are, have taken, t- took them a while to catch up to that even. But I want to break off the kind of the question. So in, in there's really what do we I think of it as, as two different directions that you want to use analysis to answer, two kinds of questions, one being the sort of the evaluation or forecasting who's going to win who's good and the other is how do you actually play the game and we saw for example in baseball was really good at the former and not so good at the latter we don't play the game baseball isn't played really any differently with the exception of maybe some shifting um uh, players pretty much play the same and the the evaluation has been very different and that's because of an analytics in tennis and well in basketball it's really the way the game has been played was changed by analytics and that's yeah. incredible to watch what's happening in tennis is it is it a little bit of both so how is the and uh, an, how is the analytics changing the way it's played yeah like have a contrast between sort of like player evaluation versus i guess in-game strategy is really what you're kind of getting at there uh, or yeah or uh, like telling it like does a player watch their their tapes and use the analysis to change the way they play yeah yeah i mean i think um I think this is one of the areas where where making more use of those data in more sophisticated ways could really be helpful because that's where, you know, having the data that actually is giving you a shot level look at the game is where the sport's really been lacking. And it's um, but it's because largely of the availability issue, because, you know, you do have that tracking data that's been there now. You've got, you know, at least a decade worth. Um, at the professional level, and it's just the inability to be able to use to utilize that and kind of evaluate it on a larger scale. Um, so for that reason, a lot of coaches, players, they're still left with the kind of traditional video analysis, which we know is going to be prone to bias. Like, you know, I have limited time, so I'm going to look at the things that I already think are probably the things that I need to be paying attention to. 
which would leave out the possibility of recognizing, you know, potential inefficiencies in the game or patterns of play that we're not as aware of. Um, so, I mean, I think there's definitely a, a lot more that needs to be done in that space. And, right. um, I mean, that's a large part of what our research is really aimed at is trying to start to open up um, some of those you know. data sources, Stephanie. I wanted yeah. to I wanted to actually bring up some. You've done already some very interesting research. Um, you have uh, some research talking about the average age of tennis players and some analysis um, explaining how they're getting older and some of the trajectories. You also have a very interesting paper talking about a, a Pythagorean formula, if you will, for tennis, which has been around. A Pythagorean formula has been around for a long time in baseball. It's it, it bled out to some other sports, and you did it in tennis. Um, so I'd actually want to talk about some of your actual research of your own. So can you tell us a little bit about um, what, you, what you discovered about the average age of, of, of tennis players um, and how that's compared historically? Yeah, so that was actually one of the first research projects I ever kind of formally did. Um, While you were a student? Um, at the time, I was, um, I was out of grad school mm-hmm. and just trying to kind of, as you know, as I guess a lot of us end up doing, right, the sort of hobbyist sports statistician um, so, so you did it's, hard, it's hard to turn it off when you go home at night. Yeah, I know. So when you, when you were when you were a PhD student at UCLA, did was your thesis in wasn't in sports? I take it. No, no, I was on a very like traditional health stats kind of track. Ah, and you um, made you made the shift to the dark side. <laughs> <laughs> but it's one of those things, you know. You kind of can't help where your passion lies, right? I love right. numbers, and I loved I loved sport, and tennis was always the one that I kind of had the most ideas around. Mm-hmm. So. Um, and then when I started to found that, you know, there, there was some public data that could address a number of the questions that would come up in commentary, but, you know, not really seeing any analysis myself, so I just thought, well, I'm just going to go ahead and do it. And this was one occasion where when uh, Roger Federer turned 30, so that would have been like six years ago now. Um, that long ago, and he's still dominating. <laughs> Yeah, that's a whole other story. But at the time, it was, I mean, it's very surprising, too, thinking of, like, where he is now. But back then, you know, people were starting to ask him about retirement. And and so that led me to think, well, you know, maybe this notion that 30 is some kind of, you know, barrier um, for professional players, that they're definitely beyond their peak, maybe maybe that's wrong. Maybe there's been a shift and so, um, so I did a kind of demographic analysis um, of a, about 20 years, looking at how ages among the top 100 players um, have changed over time. And it did show that um, over a course of about 15 years, um, the average age of the top 100, um, both the men and women, had increased by about three years. Um, so you see um, older players, players having greater longevity, um, on both sides of the tour. And I think it, it sort of aligns well with a shift um, that we kind of have a general awareness of um, in the strategy, it going from a more kind of power serve and volley game to a more baseline endurance game. And that favors the older? Is that what you're saying? Older ages. 
Okay, so so, but and 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 it is the uh, the case that you know, I mean, the average age is increasing, and and three years does sound pretty substantial. But it, is it is it a case that it really is about longevity, or are people coming into tennis at at the top one hundred level later as well? Like, my, is it a, is it a right. shift of the whole population to an older age, or is it really just a lengthening of careers for everybody? Yeah, or, I mean, or you, for for most. people? If you think about what you, your own memory, I mean, I recall back from my youth is that the the particularly on the women's side, yeah. People like Jennifer they were fifteen, Capriotti. sixteen, seventeen. Yeah. That's when the, that's when the stars happened. Yeah, and and we don't see anyone coming up at that age anymore. So, wh- what do you think it is? Yeah, I mean that's interesting because I um, I asked myself that as well. You know, maybe it's just that they're getting into the professional game at later ages, so they're still there's less um, wear and tear, yeah. and so they just you know we're kind of just shifting the whole career as opposed to lengthening it, but. Right. But I think if you if you look at sort of if you define the start of a professional career as playing your first tour level match, then that's happening at the same ages today as it was 10 and 20 years ago. I mean, it's still it's Mm -hmm. around the same time. It's just you used to have a case like a Boris Becker who would just break through as a teenager um, right away, even though he probably didn't you know, he hadn't had that much tour experience. And I remember Michael because, Chang coming out of nowhere, too. He was another really young guy. Yeah, yeah. And then you have examples like Sharapova, for example. It was like there was still that that era where, you know, the the nature of the game would favor um, physical attributes that tend to peak at, you know, those teenage years. So sprinting ability, speed, you know, the power of the serve. Um, but today, those are like less dominant skills, and it's more about being able, you know, if you need to, to play at a high level for five hours at a Grand Slam um, and be battling from the baseline. And it, it's just the case that that's going to favor, you know, the late 20-year-olds and the early 30-year-olds. So, in general. so, Stephanie, I, just, just to summarize, you're, you're essentially saying that there's two possibilities. One is that um, the, the game is actually shifted and it favors this, the skills that older players continue to maintain for a long time, as opposed to it used to be more power oriented. The other possibility, which you didn't raise, which, which I know you've written about, is exercise uh, physiology. And there's a lot of, of you know, training that the, the, the argument is, is that a 30 year old today is like a 25 year old of yesteryear. I'm just making those two numbers up. But is, is that something that is a possibility, at least? Yeah, I mean, it's hard, I think, to to um, assign, you know, a specific cause because there are so many things that have happened, you know, over the past 10, 20 years that um, it's probably, you know, a multi-factor um a multi-factor explanation. So right. I think both, you know, improved fitness, um, nutrition, you know, those have to have um, had some um, improvements in, in longevity. Um, but I think it's interesting to see that the shift very strongly coincided with um, changes in racket technology that um, would explain a lot, not only the, the shift in the play strategy, um, this kind of universal shift to the baseline game, um, and that coincided as well with these aging trends. The aging trends, so I think. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I wanted yeah, to uh, that to seems to be a strong a strong part of the story. Yeah. So this is that we're we're interviewing and talking to Stephanie Kowalczyk. She's the lead data scientist 
um, in the Game Insight Group at Tennis Australia. In, um, and uh, she's basically talking about some of her research on the age curve in tennis. But I do want to switch gears a little bit um, to talk about the French Open, which is going on right now. And I know um, you've been you've been actively tweeting about it. And I, my understanding is Djokovic just lost already uh, early this morning to, I guess, in our mind in the United States. Um, and so what are, you, what are your thoughts on what's happening and what you would be looking forward to? Yeah, it's an interesting, interesting times in the sports world. We've got the NBA Finals, the Stanley Cup, and a little event in Paris for the tennis world. Oh, but, come on. Um, you're not following baseball out in Australia? <laughs> well, how can you skip that? All right, so tell, tell us about the French Open. Yeah, so we're in um, the bottom half of the quarterfinals now. And um, so it's sort of second week when things get especially exciting. Um, and you're right, I mean... One of the biggest stories is going to be um, for this clay court season is, you know, what's happened with Novak Djokovic and Andy Murray. So, so Andy Murray, number one in the world, um, he was the finalist last year at the French Open, um, and Novak Djokovic was the defending champion. Um, and both of them have struggled this year. Um, and um, so even, you know, it's in a way – it's a bit of a surprise, um, you know, to see that Djokovic had improved his level um, over the course of of the events that he has played this year. But it's definitely been a, a disappointing clay court season for both of them. And I think with the loss um, to team, it's a great opportunity for team, but it's, it is a, you know, a big surprise um, for fans of Djokovic. And, you know, it, it looks like he wasn't at all to his 2016 level. So I think there's a lot of questions about, you know, sort of what's happened. His, How old totally is Djokovic? Let's just put it in context. Yeah, so he's one of the over 30s. There yeah. are four of the four of the eight quarterfinalists or, or over 30. Team actually is the youngest quarterfinalist this year. He's just 23. Um and definitely he's having a breakthrough um a breakthrough years in some way especially on clay he's been the only player to defeat nadal on clay this year and and that's going to be his next next match for the semifinals so um people are definitely looking forward to that but um but Djokovic has been it's been um it's interesting because i think you know there was um carol bouchard recently came out with a book called the quest which was all about Djokovic sort of time up into the win at the 2016 French Open. And that made him um, one of the, you know, the few men to be a career Grand Slam, um, you know, title holder. That was his last, Well, he's threatening to have the all-time record in the total number of of Grand Slams won. Oh, I don't think he's going to make it this point. A year ago, we were talking about whether he would break that record, and I don't think... Yeah, I mean, it just seems like it's maybe a motivation issue. It's, mm-hmm. it's surprising to think. You'd think, well, you know, why wouldn't there just be another record you would want to chase, like like you say, Grand Slam titles. But somehow it seemed like, you know, winning the French was such a milestone that after that, you know, there was some kind of shift. And he purged his team. He started working with Andre Agassi at the French. So, mm-hmm. you know, maybe, maybe after this, if they continue that relationship, um, that can do something, but I think I think for him it's not. It's probably more 
you know, of a, of a mental issue than, than a physical one or... It's got to be kind of demoralizing to see it as a moving target, right? That Federer somehow at age 35 is still tacking on to his 36 lead. 36 or 35 or 36, <laughs> yeah, whatever he is. Yeah. He seems invincible. Now, he sat, he sat, of course, this, this one out. Did he sit it out because he had no chance because Clay's not his surface, or, or do you think he's resting? Yeah, I mean, I think. Um, I, I think mean, Serena's having a baby, so not... that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she has a clear excuse. Um, right. I think for, for Roger, it's probably, you know, being more selective with his schedule is very, very crucial if he is hoping to perform well at the events that matter most to him. And I think Wimbledon is definitely at the, the top of that list. So seeing that, you know, the French comes just before the grass court season, um, that it made sense for him, given that it's not, it's not his best surface um, and that he'd already played quite a lot, probably unexpectedly at the start of the year. I mean, he came off having a shortened 2016 season and to just come from that and to win the AO, I mean, that was um, incredible. And to do it against Nadal, who they have such a lot yeah, head to head. Yeah, and then, I mean, and then Indian Wells and then Miami. I mean, yeah, the guy deserves a break, I think. He so does. I, I think it makes complete sense that, that he decided to, to take it off. And then um, I think that will serve him well for Wimbledon. So, Stephanie, we only have about a minute left. I wanted to ask your final thoughts uh, from an analytical perspective. What will it take to defeat Nadal? And which of the remaining uh, men's players has the best shot? I think team actually could be one of the trickier opponents. So, so team um, beat Nadal um, in Rome. That was the only loss Nadal had this season. Mm-hmm. And he came out just extremely aggressive. Now, one thing that you have to appreciate, as, t- as physically tough and intense as Nadal seems, he's actually a quite defensive player. So I think a player that can come out and take a lot of risk and, um, and basically play a clean game, even when playing on the edge, that that's probably the only real chance of a mm-hmm. win. So it's, it's definitely, you know, the, um, the low side of the odds, but it's probably the only way that, you know, you really um, can hope to, to win against him. So I would say team definitely that's going to be the toughest test Nadal has had yet. Um, and I think if Walrinka makes it through um, and it's a nadal Walrinka final, that could also be, that could be also. Um, a tough contest. But definitely Nadal's a strong favorite this year. Absolutely. Uh, Stephanie, it's been uh, terrific having you on our show this morning, at least here in the United States, this evening for you. I know that uh, you're going to be coming to the United States later in the summer because I have you down coming to speak to my, uh, my Wharton Moneyball Academy class. And we're very looking forward to having you here actually on campus. Um, but it's, thank you so much for, for, for uh, joining us on our show this morning. Stephanie. Um, yeah, thank you. Looking forward to later this summer, and, and thanks for the chat. You're, you're, you're absolutely welcome. This has been uh, the second hour, half hour of uh, Word Moneyball. We are going to take a short break, and we'll join you afterwards. Listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back. 
Wednesday morning, 9 a.m. to Wharton Moneyball on Sirius XM 111. This is your sport analytics show. We talk about sports, the lots of interesting happenings in uh, in sports today. This is a terrific month. I mean, Shane and I have been arguing about which is the best month for sports. And yeah, I mean, I, I, I think really it's, it's, it's down to second best because, I mean, I... Oh come on! You're, you're, I'm not you're entertaining a guy. any notion yeah. that October is not the best month. Of, I, obviously, October is the best month in sports, right? Because you've got World Series, World Series, football. You know, NHL and NBA have started up. Yeah, though we don't it's care yet, um, etc. But 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 this yeah, this time of the year is probably uh, take October out of the equation. This time of year might be the best in sports. I agree. It is, is especially exciting right now. That was Shane Jensen, everyone. Yeah, uh, Shane Jensen is my colleague in the statistics department. Huge and, October fan. That Shane Jensen. <laughs> he's a huge October. So he's also a huge. That's Red all you Sox need to fan. know about him. We'll get a chance to get back to that. We just finished a wonderful interview with Stephanie Kowalczyk. She was talking about tennis analytics, and we have a, another guest coming on our show on, in our in our third quarter, as uh, Cade Massey likes to call it. Cade is away this week, as is our other co-host, uh, Eric Bradlow, uh, leaving uh, Shane and uh, and myself, Adi Weiner, in the studio. The the, the hardcore statisticians um, <laughs> were here alone in yeah. the studio. So it's hard for, it's tempting for us to get into deep down uh, analysis, and but we're going to try to keep it at a high level. Um, and our second guest, on, uh, who will be joining us in a few moments, is Patrick Lucy. He's actually a returning guest. Um, and Patrick is, is the director of data science at the company Stats, uh, where his research focuses on maximizing the value of fine-grained player tracking data in high-performance sports. So we're going to talk about um, some of that new data that, that Stats collects. Um, he was previously on at Disney Research. I'm actually curious about um, about that that endeavor, but we'll probably not have a chance to dig into that, uh, where he analyzed automatic sports broadcasting, and he's co-authored a number of papers, um, including uh, a best paper in 2016 at the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Confer- um, Conference, which takes place every year at MIT in March. And he was the runner-up in 2017. He does have a back Background in robotics. He's a, a true data scientist, I think. He was at Carnegie Mellon's uh, Robotics Institute. And pa- Patrick uh, has his own website, uh, Patrick Lucy. And he's also, uh, you can follow him at Twitter at Patrick Lucy. So welcome to our show, Patrick. Hey, guys. Here we go. Yeah, it's great to have you. Um, where are you this morning? So I'm in uh, sunny Chicago, beautiful Chicago. It's uh yeah, so people haven't told Chicago that summer's here, so 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 we're still waiting for that. Yeah, well, it is Chicago, so well, you know what? Summer isn't really here out in Philadelphia either. We had a, a two days of ninety degrees, and then back down to rainy, cold, and uh, just all, all, all around dreary. So I'm well glad to hear that Chicago is uh, celebrating the, the summer as we are. Um, so tell us a little bit about your your job. You're, right now, you're director director of, uh, of analytics, I guess, at uh, of data science at, at Stats. So Stats is what kind of company? Yeah, so um, so stats. So, so we're based here in Chicago. Uh, so we've been around for thirty-five years, and people probably don't know it, but you use us every day. So when you check a score on on Google or you ask Siri for a score, uh, they get their data from us. So people are consuming stats data every day. Uh, so we've been around for thirty-five years, and we have the deepest. Um, amount of data. So we've got 35 years worth of data. Um, so we, uh, you know, it varies from play-by-play, box scores, um, to tracking data. So we track all the player positions in the NBA. And also we do a lot of player tracking in uh, football in um, Europe. So um, we have 35 years worth of data. 
Um, so I've been here for the last 18 or 21 months and I've built a data science group, so I'm director of data science. And uh, what my group's really good at, uh, so we're a really, really good group here, so what my group, uh, group's really good at is maximizing the value of that data. Um, so we, we, we like to think of sports as, or, or the data that we capture in sports as just reconstructing the story and we just want to maximize the use of that unstructured data that we have in terms of, 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 of tracking data. Hey, Patrick, this is Shane. Um, so do, would you sort of say that like kind of your team and what you guys are bringing is maybe a shift from like maybe historically with stats more into just kind of a, essentially just collecting and tabulating data and, and, and disseminating it as opposed to actually driving some of the analysis now of that data with your new yeah. team? Yeah, no, I, I think that's a pretty good description there, Shane. So um, again, like for 35 years, we've been collecting like that raw data. And so we're good at um, at, at at distributing that data out. But as you guys know, all the values in those higher level um, statistics that we can build upon on that. So it could be high level statistics such in basketball as pick and roll or expected point values in, in, in shooting. Um, in soccer, it could be looking at formations, like expected goals, um, stuff that we've done recently like ghosting, doing this real, really fine grained simulation. So. I'm actually really excited because the stuff that we're doing is at the forefront of artificial intelligence. You know, the ability to get a computer to understand and predict sport at a really fine-grained level. Um, and we have lots and lots of data here to do that type of stuff. So, yeah, so I like to think that we've been... Um, so Stats has, has been collecting the data to get to this point to do the type of stuff of uh, things that we want to do now. So you, you want to, at, at this point, the data, you've been producing this data for so long, and now the data is extremely interesting, and now you want to use the, the computing power, the machine learning, the, the almost the automatic learning or the deep learning, they, they call it in, 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 in computer science, to extract information from that data, and, and you're, presumably you'll, you'll sell this data, uh, although it sounds like some of the stuff you're doing is almost at basic research. But I wanted to ask you specifically, you had a paper this past year um, that uh, was, I think, was a, either a finalist or a winner in the MIT Sports Co uh, Analytics Conference that looked at, at, at shooting styles in basketball. And as you we all know here, and you know in uh, in Chicago, that is right now we're in the NBA Finals. And and this paper talked about, um, really looked at the video data to analyze shooting styles and different shooting styles. In particular, you took a deep dive into to Steph Curry. So can you tell us about that paper? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so I was very lucky. So here at Stats, uh, we've been able to get some really good interns. Uh, I worked with Panna Felsen. So she was a PhD student from Berkeley, and she's back with us now. Um, she's a fourth-year uh, computer vision researcher. And the basic premise is, you know, for Stats Portview, we've been collecting tracking data for the last five years, and it's led to all these great innovations. So you can think back, uh, Kirk Goldsby court vision work back in 2012, uh, then we have detecting ball screens, so the guys at uh, MIT have detected that um, the last couple of years. And then we have the Harvard guys um, looking at expected point value. Then the USC guys looked at rebounding. Um, we've done some really nice work in personalization and play retrieval. Um, but with the sport view data, it's kind of limiting because it still is the center of mass. And so we have this nice example where we just kind of show a play and just based looking at the tracking data, you can, you, uh, a player has a, a wide open shot, but something happens um, which affects them not taking that shot. So when you actually look at the video, you can see that the, the, the player gets a bad pass and he kind of juggles the ball, and that can explain why he took that. Um, Didn't take um, the shot. 
yeah. for example. Now, yeah. I, I wanted to yeah. just pause for a second because you mentioned that the the data typically is organized around the center of mass. So the data that that other than the new data that you're looking at here. What it what what does it look like? Is what is it a grid that sh- shows you you know in, in coordinate space where all the players are and where the ball is and where a player is is determined by their sem- center of mass? Is that what that means? Yeah, yeah. So um, so essentially, with our SportView system, we have six cameras up, and it's a great form of compression, right? So you have six HD cameras, um, and then essentially we're describing each player as an XY position. So in a basketball court, it's 50 by 94 feet. We just describe the player, um, as, you know, within those coordinates. Um, and it's really nice. You can visualize it. You know, it's kind of like what you see in a video game. But to actually understand um, how a player is actually reacting, you need actually more. Okay, so when we watch a game on TV, we don't look at the XY. We actually look at all the limbs and whatnot. And so... We yeah, look at depth. We look at the whole thing, right? We're, we're, it's yeah, not exactly just right. right. Yeah. Exactly right. Mm-hmm. So we, we, we just don't look at the center of mass. We look at where their arms are. We actually look where they're looking. And so even though sport view and computer visions come a long way, we can do much better. And so for this paper, we're actually saying, well, given that we have that body pose data, what can we actually do with it? And there's lots of things that we need to do. Um, so first of all, like what's that representation? So can we just describe it as a skeleton? Um, and using that data, is there some type of interesting analysis? And, and, and it kind of coincides with a, a lot of innovation happening in computer vision and deep learning generally. Wait, so, uh, so I just want to break this down. So what you do is you take the video and all your six cameras, and I, I've actually read the paper, so you produce what look like stick figures, if you will, and that you do yeah. that automatically, and that gives you kind of a complete coordinate breakdown of how the, the player is standing. And, and that's kind of a, 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 you know, I think that's worth kind of digging into because that's kind of a computer vision advance, right? I mean, I think, you know, to produce those kind of stick figures or whatever or, or, or uh, used to involve, like, people wearing body suits with lots of sensors on them and stuff like that. So somehow computer vision algorithms have advanced to the point where you can just sort of get that, you know, representation of their entire skeleton just from video data. Yeah, yeah. So it's really, really exciting. So... um so I have a brother who's a professor in computer vision as well. We talk about this a lot. Um, so something happened in 2012. So deep learning came along. And so my brother likes to say before 2012, we call that BC. That's like before convolutional neural nets. Then after 2012, we call it AD. So whoa, 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 whoa. I, I'm, just gonna, I'm gonna break this down here a minute. Neural nets have been around since the 50s, I think. Yeah. So, so uh, when are you so talking we're, about? We're kind of reinventing the wheel. So this is like the EM algorithm, which was which was invented in the 1930s until Don Rubin reinvented it in the 1970s. So you guys are hitting on a nice sweet spot here. So a lot of these things, it's like a perfect storm. I like to think of it as a three-legged stool. Okay. okay. First of all, to, for a deep learning to work, you need three things. Okay. The first thing is you need a lot of data. Okay. And so, so luckily, it's stats. We stats. Have you have a lot of data. No question. Go on. This but is very interesting because is. I mean, this just to just to back away for a minute. Yep. Deep learning for all our listeners. We're 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 talking about it in the context of sports, but it's it's all the rage in in, in essentially vision or, or image analysis in 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 no, numerous applications. So, of course, essentially cataloging the web, all its images, all its video. It, deep learning is 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 uh, used there, and I believe it. There, 
tremendous hope for, for figuring out and automating tasks that we that we now involve humans to do, particularly driving, I think, is one of them. But deep learning is is, is something that everyone likes to talk about, but nobody really quite understands. So so I'm going to give you back the so floor. I, yeah, I'd like to hear the other two things yeah. you need besides yeah, yeah. lots of data. So, yeah. um, so you're spot on there. So the second thing is you need the computational power. So now we have the ability to process that on the GPU. And so uh, for those who don't know, so GPU is basically a lot of these chips um, and allows for parallel processing. So just on a really powerful desktop, you could have 12 CPUs, but um, you know that kind of limits what we can do. But with a GPU, you have like thousands of these um, processes that we can do this in parallel. It's in the, it's typically in the cloud, right? Is that how it works? Or? So you can do it in a cloud, or you can just have a you can have a machine. Uh, you, you know, you could have a cluster here. Um, wherever you are, right? You, okay. you know, wherever you are. Mm-hmm. But the important thing is that you have those GPUs, and then you can just set up and, and do things in parallel. And so that allows you to actually. Um, uh, determine the parameters of your deep network. So exactly right back in the 50s, they came up with this idea, but they didn't have the computational power to actually um, make this converge. As well as the richness of data that you would need to actually estimate things. Exactly right. Exactly right. So you need those two things. And the third thing is having the people to actually know how to actually work uh, um, or to, to, to set up the network. Um, so what about the- 2012 makes these three things um, kind of come into your, into, at least in your historical time frame, the magic time? Yeah, so in terms of just collecting data, so storing and collecting data, um, the cost associated with that kind of dropped. Mm-hmm. Uh, then also the ability to actually use GPUs, um, that kind of became, um, you, know, um, you know, common practice. And there's a lot of software out there, uh, a lot of toolboxes that people could use to actually um, accelerate um, you know, these types of algorithms and, 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 and use them in practice. So, um, yeah, it's kind of like a perfect storm for all these types of things to, um, you know, enable this kind of next kind of iteration in artificial intelligence. And, yeah, I'm really excited because people say, well, you can't do it for sport. And it's like, well, we do it for a, a, autonomous vehicles. You know, they do that in real time and, you know, they work pretty well. Um, and so, yeah, no, it's a really exciting time to be around. Okay, so this is a this is this uh, deep learning, which is which you're which you're marrying essentially with this incredible amount of data that you're collecting through through stats, and and now you're applying it to these um, the, to the basketball players. So let's now get back to the research. Um, just yeah. for our listeners, we're 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 we're, uh, we're interviewing Patrick Lucy. Uh, he is the director of data science at, at Stats, and he has some great work which we're talking about with with basketball um, and looking at the video data to extract information. So let's go let's go back to that paper. Yeah, so, um, and, and I think Shane touched on this before. Okay, so uh, once upon a time, we could capture body pose, but it was kind of, we, we had to do that in a lab setting. So you can think of Vicon, they do it for movies. Um, and then 2000, I think, 10 or 11, the Kinect uh, um, came out, Microsoft Connect. So you had a depth sensor, and that's able to capture, um, you know, the body pose. But that can only work in um, really limited situations. So, you know, we, we, you have it at home, you know, you can use it in your living room, but that's about it. That's, it's kind of limited on where you can use it. Uh, but then, you know, we're talking about deep learning GPUs. Now we can actually do it in the wild. So given a 2D image or a video, we can start to estimate the, the body pose. Um, 
And so there's lots of great work out, you know, from CMU. There's lots of great work coming out of, um, you know, Berkeley, you know, just, just everywhere. So if you go to uh, CVPR, which is a big computer vision conference, most work, it just looks at using deep learning and, and, and uh, a really exciting field is capturing body pose. Um, and so what we've been able to do is, is use that on, um, you know, broadcast video. We're able to, to kind of estimate the body pose. But that's just the starting point. Wait, so do you use deep learning to estimate the, bo- the body pose? Or is that how, is, is the learning algorithm to figure out like what the actual configuration of the person is? Or Yeah, so that, okay. that, 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 that's basically um, how it works. Mm-hmm. So you're able to get an image and it solves it simultaneously. So the, so the intuition is I could have a detection of where my wrist is. But if I have an estimate where my elbow is or my head is, all that information propagates, so that enforces or that gives us clues to where the other parts of the body are. Mm-hmm. And using this kind of um, this technology, we can estimate uh, um, all those things together. So we can solve all these things simultaneously. I, I just I wanted to interrupt for uh, when you do this, you do this with training data. I mean, do you actually have it labeled and you go and you? I mean, yes. Ah, okay, yeah. all right. Yeah. So so there's two things there. So so you can run it out of the box or you could um, so so you can use training data. Mm-hmm. So it's obviously to train any model you need lots and lots of training data, which we have. Um, and so for the paper that we wrote, we actually annotated um, lots and lots of video. So it's um, and that's a really interesting point because annotating fine grained behavior like this is really tough. Um, and time consuming. If you're, off, if, if you're off by a pixel, mm-hmm. um, that just propagates. So um, humans aren't really good at that. So uh, I, I think ultimately, you know, a computer can um, do a better job than a human for these types of things because it's really, really difficult to do that. Okay, so you use a deep learning algorithm to to if you, to take the video and identify this stick figure that that is actually doing stuff. What yep. what was your some of your results? Okay, so there's a couple of things before we can get to the results. So I'll just quickly summarize. So once we okay. have the two D estimate from the image or video, we have to project that back to three D, um, and that's an ill posed problem because we're actually going from lower dimensions to high dimensions. Uh, but again, given lots of data and there's lots of techniques out there which allows us to do that. And once we have it in three D, we have to do some type of alignment. So as, as you know, people have different, uh, you know, they're different heights, different sizes. So we have to get in the same frame of reference so we can compare, you know, a wrist and an arm to, um, you know, to various players. Then also, uh, so for this work, we analyzed three-point shots, okay? And so we broke, we actually found the anatomy of a three-point shot. So we had to temporarily break it down into these segments. So you can think about it, you know, be, you know before I, I um, set up to take a shot, um, and then during the shot, then after the shot. And so we have to do these kind of pre-processing steps before any analysis can take place. Um, and so what we found is that, um, you know, obviously um, when someone makes a shot compared to when they miss a shot, you know, obviously um, when uh, they're more likely to make a shot when they're balanced. And we can kind of detect these things using our body pose um, representation and, yeah. All right, so let me. So I've been watching quite a bit of basketball the last couple of games. Games, of course, have been particularly interesting, and I've noticed that that actually seems to be very, very true. And you, when a, when a ball uh, is passed to a player, it's particularly the perimeter, and they've just been standing there with unguarded, and the ball just arrives. It seems to me I can almost predict that they're going to make it. Yet when they seem to have just gotten it a little off, off a little bit, then it looks like it's unlikely. And 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 so that's essentially what you're capturing automatically. 
Yes, yes, exactly right. So, so again, you can imagine you just have centre of mass, you just see a dot. You can't really, um, you, you can't really detect that, right? You can't right. really predict based on that information. But when you have that body pose, they're set, they look balanced, they're more likely to make that. So in terms of actually prediction, you know, we just have more information, which allows us to do better prediction. So, so, that's, so that's exactly the intuition. I see. So we've been able to show. So if we're looking at amazing three-point shooters, there might be different reasons why they're good at it. For example, does this, I'm going to ask, pose it as a question. Is Steph Curry such a great three-point shooter because he seems to be always balanced no matter where he's taking his shot? Yeah, or is, it, is, is it the case that he is that much more accurate when balanced than everybody else, or is he able to achieve that balanced state more often than everybody else, okay. I guess? What's really interesting is that he takes the most shots unbalanced. Mm. Unbalanced? So that he's, he's because he's yeah. been so closely guarded. Yeah. So what we're finding, it's really interesting. So his ability to make a shot unbalanced is unparalleled. Right. Interesting. Um, and so, and what we're finding, you, you'd assume, okay, he um, gets open a lot. So if he had an open shot, he's more likely to make it than others. But what we're actually finding that it's really fo- hard to find examples of that because it very rarely happens. Wow, yeah. I, I, it's almost breathtaking because we, we, we watched Steph Curry and, and what you're t- essentially telling us from the analysis is that, is that he's so great because he can, he can do very well even when he's guarded and unbalanced. The analogy in baseball would be the great hitters can take a pitch that's, that's low and outside that's very hard to hit. And or, still or a turn particular it into hitter is amazing in part because he's able to even deal with, like, like even if you shift on him, he's able to find the holes in that. Exactly, exactly. So mm-hmm. we're finding some really nice game theory here because uh, we had that tennis paper last year where we won it slow and about personalization. Um, and then we thought, oh, okay, we, we could easily personalize these shots. But what we're finding is that it's kind of self-selecting. A lot of the top players who are really good were not getting examples of um, taking open shots. And the, you know, the not-so-great players are getting open shots, and so they're kind of skewing the distributions. Mm-hmm. So there's some really interesting stuff coming out here and, and how we can be smart in getting that true shooting percentage in, in, in certain situations. So will right. this allow evaluation, or how is this going to improve? Um, there's, of course, lots of sides to this. You're, you're with stats, so you're essentially an information provider. But how yep. would I use this information, say, if I'm management um, or if I'm a coach, for example? So um, the big thing, and, and this is what we can do really well, we can contextualize the data. Okay, so we can, you can ask a specific question. So in that example, so just have a, I have an example. You can say, well, what's the likelihood of this player making that shot? Or what if I switch that player with another player? So we can really do fine-grained simulations and ask those what-if questions. So uh, as you guys know, and, and most of the listeners know, that you know, we have the box score, or we have these player stats, and they work in the aggregate. But what I think the next stage of analytics is, is to simulate these kind of specific plays and see what a, a different player will do in, a, in, in these situations. So, um, so that's where the value um, that we bring. So in a given situation, we can model that context and we can give more precise answers because we understand the data in those situations. Do you think there's an application, say, in college? For example, one of the things that's very difficult about forecasting performance in the NBA from college is that the competition is so different. 
and maybe a player is great in college at say three point shooting because they were always open, they were always had balanced shots, or, and we or, can't or, or they they are well coached to the extent that the coach yeah. is able to put them in in kind of a formation or or set of strategies where they really succeed, but maybe those strategies don't translate as well into the professional game. Absolutely, absolutely. So a big um, a big hindrance currently is the data. So obviously in the NBA we have like five six seasons worth of this rich data. So mm-hmm. in college we haven't got that. And um, what this represents is modeling that mismatch between different uh, conditions. So in college, we, it, it, um, you pointly wrote, um, point out there's you know, differences in rules, there's differences in skill. Uh, what we want to do is know those differences between college and professional, and then we can map that and know which kind of resonates in those, in, in, um, you know, between those two situations. Now, now, I know that uh, Shane's going to potentially love this, but I'm listening to your story here, and I say it's got to be applicable to the NFL. Is yeah. that coming? I mean, if you, you watch some quarterbacks. Are, the quarterback is the most important position in all of sports in terms of their impact and their value and how, the, uh, and how important it is to a team to have one. And one of us, one of the things that's very difficult is we never really can figure out ahead of time what makes a quarterback so good. We can measure arm strength and accuracy and things, but it doesn't seem to cut it. It almost yeah. seems to me uh, that you're on the cutting edge of producing a technology could, that could solve this problem. So what do you think about that suggestion, or, and are you moving in that direction into oh, football? Absolutely. So it's just a function of the data. Um, yeah. So in the NFL, you have like the zebra data, so you have the, that, that tracking data. And so once you have that, you can, um, you can do these types of things. Um, so again, what we're really good at is understanding team behavior. So we can do it for, for soccer, we can do it for basketball, we can do it for football. And the nice thing about American football is that it's already segmented. Mm-hmm. And we have that playbook. It's already discretized into the state space. And so we can actually simulate what's going to happen. And in a way, we actually see that in Madden. All these video games actually do it, uh, but it's deterministic. It, it's wait, wait, video games? I'm sorry, what were you yeah. talking about? Yeah, Madden. Yeah. Madden, Madden oh, oh, Madden's oh, one Madden. of the best. Oh, you got to explain this. To, to Madden's you. one of the best analytical simulators out there. I think. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So um, I think in the very near future, we're going to have the ability to use real game data to actually um, simulate what's going to happen uh, via a video game. And you can imagine that. You know, this could be used as a tool for players to actually learn in just a pregame. So instead of watching tape, you could just say, hey, I'm just going to play Madden or, or, or whatnot. Um, so we're not that far. It's just a function of the data. So what are and, the interventions that you can use? I mean, so when I say, an in, so you want to figure out if something's going to work, I guess that's how it works. Um, you're going to say, what if I did this differently? So how would that actually play out? So you just pull up an example. So the parent yeah. examples, we have that snapshot. And so in this situation, this is what we think this player is going to do. And then if you could move another player and you could see how those percentages change, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think that'd be quite informative. And I think this is, a, this is something that I think is kind of the future. So we talk about sports analytics and new metrics. I don't actually think new metrics is the way to go. I don't think that's the future. I think it's a symbiosis between a human and a computer. So can we develop new technology to help a domain expert do their job better? I think that's really the next, um, you know, the, the, the next step in sports analytics, just enabling, creating this kind of technology just to help coaches or analysts or, you know, people at home like us, just to be able to ask these what-if questions. And I don't think we're that far off. That's that's an, an, an tantalizing and rather amazing and somewhat shocking uh, forecast because what you're essentially telling us is that we're going to be able to sit in the coach's room with a big screen and say, let's this devise this play. And instead of just 
practicing it and, and hoping, you're going to actually get a chance to figure out what's going to happen and, and go through the different possibilities and kind of almost simulate what really will take place. Yeah, yeah. Why not? Um, <laughs> and But I, 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 it, there, there's a caveat there. Okay, so you have to know where what the data can give you and you also have to know what the data doesn't give you. So um, as we said before with body pose, just say we're using the tracking data, you have to know that all the information uh, possible isn't in that tracking data. So looking where their eyes are or the head or, or the body pose. Um, and so, we're, um, so I heard this really good talk uh, a couple of years ago and the, the, the lecturer said, you know, we're out of the age of information, we're in the age of recommendation. So I think if we can build technology just to help a domain expert to do their job better, just to basically say, well, there are a couple of things that you can expect and then you can prepare accordingly. So that's what really gets me excited, that whole idea of human-computer interaction and just using the data to ask these precise questions and, and, and just nail down that context. So uh, this has been a terrific a terrific excursion into this amazing new data that is uh, coming out of stats. I think there are probably other uh, analysts who are working on it. I think your background, Patrick, in... Um, in, in video is is really, really important to all this. And one of the things that I think we as statisticians are a little limited in is that actual component. And I think there's probably a marriage there along the way because the stats side of things is something that, that we bring to the table. But what you're doing here is is really, it's not it's not statistics. It's really, it's morally more the analysis of this incredible amount of data, extracting information from it, and then using it in, in appropriate and very interesting ways. So, I, uh, Patrick, I want to thank you for joining us this morning. This has been Patrick Lucy uh, coming f- to us from Chicago, um, which is it's been a great having you. So, thanks. Okay. Great, thanks, guys. I appreciate it. And we look forward to having you again on our show after the next uh, award-winning paper that they <laughs> produce at MIT Sports Conference. Uh, it's 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 really daunting for anyone else who wants to enter that competition. I think, right? So, uh, anyway, we're going to take a break, and uh, we'll join you guys in about uh, three minutes or so. Thanks. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, Sirius XM 111. That's Danielle Bruno on the soundboard. Thanks to Danielle for this interesting selections. And to our producer, Matt Johnson, back in the studio. We want to give them a shout out for putting our show together this morning. Uh, We just finished uh, an interview with Patrick Lucy from Stats, where he uh, is talking about some of the latest research coming out of that amazing company. They collect all this data um, with multiple cameras, which they focus on all the players, and then they've been using deep learning, this this uh, computer algorithm. It's been around for a long time, but has but has really transformed its utility because of the the introduction of essentially high com- high power cloud computing or multiple processor computing, which has allows the possibility of of really uh, taking something apart with that would would ordinarily have taken hundreds of years of computing time, you can do this in seconds. And this is the, the same technology that makes automatic driving possible or will make automatic driving possible. And the, the insights that they discovered are particularly interesting. They really help you understand why Steph Curry is such an incredible uh, three-point shooter. You can watch the guy and you say, man, he takes 30-foot 30 30 shots and pull up, pulling up from a dribble, and no one else does that. And that is sort of an obvious thing. But he, what, one of the things that he talked about was, this is not obvious, is that it's very hard to take a shot when you're unbound. Balanced. We yeah. know that, but I would have most, thought... Most players are that, that you really, it, it degrades their performance if they're unbalanced. That's right. And I would, I would have thought that Steph Curry is just good at getting open and, and being balanced. And no, he, the result is actually the opposite. What makes him so good is he's able to shoot accurately when he's unbalanced. Yeah. 
And, and uh, that, it's pretty incredible. And, and, and I mean, like, it's it, it, that's got to be relatively demoralizing for anybody trying to deal with Steph Curry because, you know, uh, you know, the usual stra- you know, half of, you know, the usual strategy for playing defense in basketball is to make sure nobody gets balanced. Right. And, 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 and oh, but, but lest we get the wrong conclusion, when he is balanced and open, he's ridiculous. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's not like he's bad when he's balanced. That's right. You know, don't leave him alone and like hope that'll help. And I think in some reason, this is why Durant's addition to the team is so, has been so important. Uh, although there's a wonderful analysis by ESPN's uh, 538's Ben Morris, which we wrote before the season started, which talked about how Durant really is, is, is to two point shots what Steph Curry is to three point shots. He yeah. adds that additional value. But the two Two of them together, they actually complement each other, giving Steph Curry more opening, giving the rest and, of the and, team and more that, opening. And that, that part of that that kind of dynamics between the two of them and the sort of like how they play as a team was something that was somewhat more speculative going into the season. I mean, I remember having That's conversations right. with it. Eric and some yeah. other people who were, you know, un- certainly uncertain that like, you know... Kevin Durant would actually sort of be so complimentary to that team. Clearly, it's working out pretty well for him. It has been. So this is uh, Wharton Moneyball, and I'm Adi Weiner, your host, and I'm joined in the studio with, with Shane Jensen. We're both with the Department of Statistics. If you'd like to give us a call this Wednesday morning at one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six for the next twenty minutes or so. We're just going to be going through some of the this week's uh, events. Um, and I want to actually begin with a non typical sporting event, but one that I am extremely fascinated by, which is um, Alex Hunold. I introduced this in, our, in the top of the hour. He did something remarkable, and most of you probably are unaware of this. And uh, he climbed free solo. El Capitan, and and from the front face, it, there are a m- bunch of routes. So El Capitan is a, is a beautiful mountain in Yosemite Valley. It's 3,000 feet high, and it is a sheer face. Some of it is, is smooth granite, and, and you, it's impossible to, to, to get, get a grip on it. And what he did was he did this without ropes, and he did it without not only ropes to pull himself up, but he also used without any safety equipment. So we went, went up with rubber shoes, some chalk, Shirt and shorts. That's it. He did it in four hours. Wow. And this was considered just the beyond comprehension, a, a feat this remarkable, no one can even uh, understand. And, and what, why, one of the reasons why I think it's so interesting, and it actually has parallels in other sports, is it's the mental component which made this, and the preparation which makes it, which allowed Alex to achieve this. Yeah, so I mean, just give me some context, because I yeah. don't know anything about uh, climbing Roy uh, as, a, as a sort no, of a not many do. or, or uh, uh, is, is, you know, is this guy just, is he so standalone in this uh, kind of ability, or is he just kind of the first? Uh, are there many people trying to do this same endeavor, and he happened to be, just be the first to do okay, it? Okay, so my understanding is there's quite a few cl- climbers of his caliber in the sense of physical accomplishments. So in terms of being able to hang and hold and grip, and there are many climbers who are, maybe not many, but there's at least a handful of climbers who are in his uh, physical capacity. And that is, 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 is a good question, I think, and I think that that's, that's part of it. So obviously you have to have that physical skill if you're going to do this. Mm-hmm. But from what I understand, what makes him remarkable, remember that's free soloing, and that's a very rare... I didn't even know this con... Yeah, people tried to do this. It sounds insane when to me. When you watch it, I mean, you're watching, I mean, there's there's no safety, and he's yeah. up 3,000 feet in a sheer cliff. So what's happening is, and what makes him so remarkable, is one preparation, he maps this route repeatedly, he goes up many, many, many times, not uh, not always solo, with, with ropes, yeah. and he checks things out, he marks it, he knows exactly what holds he's going to use the whole way through. And then finally, 
uh, it's the mental preparation. It's the ability to concentrate. And in this particular case, there's a, a fear that's an actual fear. It's, a, it's an instinctive fear that happens that crawls up into your belly. One We've might even call it a rational fear. <laughs> a rational fear. Yeah. If you've ever stood a, a, on the top of, a, of, a, of an observation tower where there's a railing, you, you get this, this feeling in your stomach saying to your, oh, my God, this is, this is nuts. What am I doing here? And I think it's probably, probably built in. It's, it's, a, it's just a natural yeah. fear. And he has the ability to just ignore it. And he keeps completely calm under this pressure-filled, um, intensely fearful environment. Mm-hmm. And he has a, a, a way that, that, that doesn't do it. And, and he's been apparently been preparing for this for nine years. Wow. And he just shot out there and did it. But the one of the things that I think is the, the lesson for sports in general is that it creates... Um, what he did here is what was inconceivable 20 years ago, inconceivable even five years ago, and it stretches the envelope of possible. Right. Now that he's done that, we're going to see a whole bunch of people right. attempting similar or crazy feats, basically. And I think that's something in all sports that, that yeah. is important. It's this idea that, like, Steph Curry broke open basketball yeah. in some way because he started shooting from 30 feet, and, and, and all of a sudden people are realizing, wait a minute, you can do that. Yeah, or I mean, I, we we talked I think a couple of weeks ago about Roger Federer. I think it was co- coming out of the Australian mm-hmm. Open that like you know the fact that this guy is able to maintain this kind of sustained success into his mid thirties, which was previously considered an unbelievable feat in, in tennis, is now probably going to inspire a whole lot of you know people on the cusp of thirty. Uh, Keeping going with it as opposed to like maybe kind of going off, you know, riding off into the sunset. And I think that is one of the I think what we've seen here is not that that we're going to particularly be following rock climbing going forward or go or anyone else's. But it's an example of two things which I think are really important. One is the mental component. This is something that Rick Peterson, when he's on our show, regularly emphasizes that is the preparation and the mental focus. And what everyone is essentially saying about Alex's climb is that he didn't have physical skills that were that are so far above everyone else. Mm-hmm. He, his physical skills are, are what all the superstars have. Let's not be clear. Let's be clear here. He's yeah. a superstar. But it, what he has above all is not only the physical skills, but also the mental and the preparation to put the three together and you accomplish things that no one can comprehend. We, I, I hate to bring up one of Eric's favorite sports when he's not here, but this is what happening in the eating competition. Yeah. Right. No one thought it was possible to eat more than 19 hot dogs until, until this Kobe one guy. Ash, Kobe just wrecked it. He, did, he ate like 75 and he just sort of broke open the mold and how this is how this happens you 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 mentioned that that's similar in 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 age people just staying with the sport a whole lot longer than they ever thought they could and these are these are when you have these transition moments these breakthrough moments and and i think we just saw one in rock climbing so let's go back to our our more ordinary uh more typical sports we we began our hour talking about the the nba and the finals we did the nhl we did the champions league so i think maybe it's time for us to go back to the baseball season. Yeah. So what are you thinking about? <sighs> what am I thinking about? Well, why are the Yankees good? I, that's one thing I'm thinking about. What's why are that the all about? Good? Well, we, they we, weren't we, supposed to be. I'm a little bit disappointed about this whole. Uh, <laughs> this come, preseason yeah. began with the Red Sox heavily favored in the American League East. Yeah. Um, and the, the Orioles jumped off to a, to a big lead. And the Orioles seem to surprise every year, every year. And the Yankees were supposed to be in the bottom. They're actually in the lead, although we're right now in a, in a very interesting three-game series. Although it is only May, or actually it's June, but the, it looks like it's going to be a Red Sox-Yankees season. It, it looks like they're, yeah, that, that, 
I would, I would, you know, who knows? But yeah, I, I think those two teams look like they're going to be competing down to the wire. O- always exciting. I mean, the Red Sox have great young hitting talent. They have possibly the best pitcher in the American League mm-hmm. uh, in Chris Sale, who seems to strike out almost every other batter. Yeah, um, I think he was one of the youngest pitchers ever to hit uh, two thousand strikeouts, um, which is just remarkable. Um, they also have some other decent, pi- mm-hmm. decent pitchers. They've had some some ups and downs in the beginning, but we're looking forward to a yeah. Red Sox Yankees rivalry. What do you think about Albert Pujols? Albert Pujols is a um, 600 home run hitter. Yeah, no, I mean, congrats to him. I mean, obviously, the guy, um, especially during his career in St. Louis, was, you know, unbelievable. I mean, the guy. A Titan, yes. if, if, there ha- if, if this guy, Barry Bonds, hadn't existed, Albert Pujols would have won about five MVPs in a row when he was in St. Louis. Absolutely. Um, and, you yeah. know, I mean, he had a Hall of Fame career before, before he even went to Anaheim, I think. Um, and obviously, you know, we're. we're He's at the. He's on the downslope of his career, but he's still. But he's still. He's still out. productive, and you know he's not. He's not productive to the uh, well, the, to the post- extent of the money they're paying him, yeah. but like he is still like a very productive, and, and they're going to need him with Mike Trout going out. Well, I was going to give you a little bit of hard time about your Mike Trout prediction from a couple weeks ago. Oh, uh, well, well, because we, he got injured. We, right, we, right, we right, were discussing. Yes, we were discussing the certainty of Mike Trout's but I, performance. I gave him zero season. chance of hitting fifty, and I guess that is certainly come well, true. But that's I, true. I did predict he had forty-two and forty-two plus in or minus one or two. Yeah, that looks like it's unlikely now. For those of you who don't know, Mike Trout is out for six to eight weeks with a torn. At least he might need surgery. Two, two, oh, torn UCL in his thumb. Uh, his first injury in his career. Um, yeah. He's twenty-five years old, and he's been charging. He's unquestionably the best player in baseball as of now. Yeah. Um, and and, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I'm, I'm, really, I'm really hoping that he recovers as quickly as possible in this injury because he could be the best player in base we've ever seen in baseball. And, and certainly in our going. lifetimes. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it was when I look back, Albert Pujols had that stature. Back, yes, no, back, I mean back, back in his mid twenties. That's right. He had that stature, but I don't think we should take away his accomplishment because when I was a kid, the only people who hit over 600 home runs were obviously uh, Aaron and Ruth, yeah. and Mays. And that was it. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, Eric Eric always talks about his kind of tiers of the Hall of Fame. You know, he he focuses on his tier one, which is maybe the top five to ten percent of Hall of Famers that are sort of, right. you know, no doubt Sherlock, you know, kind of Hall of Famers. And then there's a big middle ground. Then there's the sort of more marginal candidates. Pujols is, is a tier one. Is a tier one and was a tier one before he even like transitioned from St. Louis to. That's Atlanta. right. I mean, think about his his uh, ability to hit home runs, hit for average, hit hit doubles, and barely strike out. Yeah, um, these were these. This has made this. Guy I remember that. Uh, I mean, this is a long. This is like over a decade ago. But that one playoff series between Houston and St. Louis, um, that Houston actually ended up going on to win. But you know, I think it was in Game Six in in, in Houston. Um, you know, Albert Pujols came up and hit like one of the cra- biggest home runs I've ever seen. I mean, you could, you could you could hear that crack of the bat. I mean, and the thing just. Lou out of the stadium. Absolutely, I remember. I remember watching Albert Pujols in batting practice playing against the Phillies, mm-hmm. and he just he just had different sound, different ability. Yeah. And and uh, you know there was we we were spoiled with home run hitters during the the era of the steroid era. Yeah. And and although Pujols wasn't really caught up in it yeah. um, directly, it, it it cheapened in our minds the, the 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 incredible home run power of that era. And and I don't think we're going to be seeing six hundred home run hitters into the future. No, much prob- who knows? I mean, maybe the scooter guy. He got a good spot. Ah, so yes, let's uh, let's talk about the, the, the scooter. Um, okay, so Scooter Janet. Scooter Janet <laughs> hit four home runs last night. Um, he was five for five. He had four home runs and ten RBIs. Ten RBIs is, seems like an enormous amount. That's the kind of thing that might happen every year. But four home runs 
four home runs. I don't think ten R. When was ten RBIs in a game is like it's unusual. But it's the I second mean, time it's happened this year. Four home runs. Let's so, talk about how unusual four home right, runs. Right. So is in a game. so let's compare. We had Edison Volquez had a no hitter yep. also this week. No hitters happen. How often do you think? It seems like they're happening like once or twice a season now. I think once or twice a season. I think is is about what they've been doing, and I don't think that's that's unusual. It's something to to, to check, but yeah. I believe one or two um, no hitters a year is is about right. Perfect games, on the other hand, are oh, much those more are much more rare. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that that I think you once every five years or so. I think we probably get a perfect. I game. I think we get one every every once every five years. Maybe our producer will help look this up while we're listening, but. I know that uh, four home runs in a game, this is the 17th time that's happened. And that, I believe, is certainly on the order of magnitude of a perfect game, but it may be even more infrequent. I think it is more infrequent than perfect game. I, I would guess that there's been more than 17 uh, perfect games, um, certainly. In fact, I, I, when was the last time before now that uh, there was four home runs in a game? I, I remember Mike. You know, like early two thousands, Mike Cameron had four. Mike home runs Cameron in a had game. it, and uh, these are these are good questions. Uh, but the basic point is, it essentially is the the batting equivalent yep. of a perfect game. That's right. When five for five, he had four home runs. It's about as good as you can possibly do. Bam, there you have it. But it's interesting. I think it's it's considered in our minds. Who is this guy, Scooter, Scooter Janet? Our, our view, and, and Mike Cameron's a fine hitter, but he's certainly not yeah. you know a world beater. Um, certainly not even a home run a Hall of Famer to say the least. And, and the, I think the issue is, is that we definitely consider it more of a luck feat uh, a perfect game I mean, yeah, at the same time no i mean i do agree you i think the home run it is more of a luck feat i mean i think there's a luck component to perfect games too like if you look at the people that have you know pitched perfect games there are a few that are kind of hall of famers but there's a lot of random perfect games out there too Right. I mean, of course, the most famous one is, is Don Larson's in the World yeah. Series. And who is Don, Don Larson? I mean, he was a perfectly average pitcher. Yeah. Um, I just got the figures. 23 um, perfect games in Major League history. Okay. And so 17. You, so, um, no, I mean, uh, I, 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 I think your analogy is really great then. I think, you know, we should really resolve, uh, consider the four home run game as kind of the hitting equivalent of the perfect uh, well, game, we just game. Ha- we just we just had it and that's yeah. that certainly is fantastic just had both of them in one week in one week well the no hitter well, no, 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 yeah, no, no, no not hitter. a perfect game um, yeah. but we have all kinds of great stuff going on in the MLB as well I mean of course the, what it, how is Colorado so good what how is, is going Colorado on there? good uh, no what is idea going on there? I have no idea they were not predicted to be good they, they've won a lot of close games and they did that last year as well I feel like the NL the NL West is kind of I, that's I, I feel like that is, that entire division is almost the reverse of what we thought it would be. I mean, I guess we, you know, I, I didn't expect San Francisco to be bad. Um, and I, I actually was just at a Phillies a Giants game um, a few last weekend, mm-hmm. and I was talking to my friends who are not really big baseball fans. They're like, oh, they noticed that both these teams came in with poor records. I'm like, well, yeah, the Phillies, we kind of knew that was going to happen. But Colorado, what's but, the story but, uh, there? San Francisco, we did not know it was going to be bad, and I, I, I would argue we certainly did not know Colorado was going to be good. But speaking of good, and is the Houston Astros. I think yeah. at this point, they're clearly the best team in they're baseball. Like, they've got like a 14-game lead uh, in, in they've won like, 11 early in June. And they, they, they are unbelievable. Now, this is a team that is basically, well, I mean, they, they've stored up a little bit. They went to the playoffs a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. um, but they've really been building to, to, to yep, this. And we had right. the, the great opportunity to to, uh, to interview Jay Lunau, um, uh, who's, of course, the GM for, for the Astros, and he's a former Penn graduate. And they've really used analytics to, to bring their team to, to, to the top. Yeah, and I mean, I think they're kind of doing it the way teams, especially teams... Uh, 
you know, these in the post-steroid era are, are, are attaining success, which is really kind of like putting together, like focusing on youth, putting together, like having a great development system, using analytics, and, and kind of, you know, now, you know, it's all about establishing kind of a cohort of young players that are all kind of like hitting their stride together. And and that's clearly what's happened in Houston. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm not pleased about that, but that seems to be what's happening a little bit in New York as well. And in New York, is especially dangerous because you can, can you take you can take those young players and then add. You know, if you've got the century and limited funds to kind of well, that's complement right. them, then that's that that's dangerous. So, who do you think the Yankees are going to sign? What, what Shane is is alluding to is the trade deadline, which is in which is uh, August one or July thirty first. This is the the last opportunity for a contender to to add a, a big player in a trade. And what happens typically is. They make a trade which which is uh, very very lopsided in the sense that it often trades away your future talent yeah. in order for an immediate return. And when you have big money to pay the contracts, you can do a lot. So what can happen? Well, if I was a Yankees fan, I'd recommend they essentially stay stand pat, like i.e., do not give up because they're a little bit early on. You know, to to their sort of predicted success, um, I certainly would not if I'm the Yankees. Uh, kind of go into a win now mode where I'm trading any of that young talent right. or any upcoming but they could young use talent. A starting pitcher. They could also use a third baseman, um, but <laughs> it's, but but they really look know. terrible. I mean, when it comes to starting pitching, they they have they have a bunch of their best pitcher is a second is, a, is essentially a second starter. They they do not have the most impressive starting rotation among contenders. At the same time, they're leading the division they with are. what they got. So I mean, I, I again, I mean, I would I would love them to trade the entire farm uh, away for like <laughs> you know I don't know. What 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 the kind of a, a a good sort of starting pitcher that's available would be, but um, I I don't know who they'd get because the starting no. pitchers that are doing well are, are caught up in pennant races. I mean, they do need a third baseman. I think they should trade their farm for uh, Pablo Sandoval. Yeah, what do you great. think? Yeah, like another Panda. Babe Ruth kind of blockbuster between the two arch rivals. <laughs> yeah, what do you think of how's that? Sandoval doing out he's, there? He, he's on, he's he's playing. He's that's playing. All, that's He's, all, you, that's all you can say about it. Yeah. So a lot going on in baseball. This is an exciting beginning of the season. We're about one third of the way in. Um, the uh, we got got great stuff going on in New York. They're a little early in, in terms of their peaking. I mean, that's a lot of that's behind uh, the big bat of Aaron Judge. We mm-hmm. did forecast him. Um, so a couple weeks ago, I was in the studio with, with Eric. We did talk about who's going to who is the best shot of. He was at 50. like fourteen home runs. He was at back fourteen then? home runs. He's now at eighteen. Trout, of course, is injured. Um, the last one who was also uh, talked about Freddie Freeman. He's also injured. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The be- and so the better the best shot comes from who um, I'm not sure uh, who's got it uh, other than Trout. Um, There's some terrific home run hitters. Stanton, you've got Harper who's hitting the ball like crazy, and they're talk about he's going to go up to free agency not not this year but end of next year. Can he be signed for four hundred million dollars? Oh, not yeah. out of the question. And, I mean, almost people almost conceive that it, it concede that it's going to go to the Yankees. He's not going to stay with the Nationals, but the Nationals are doing terrifically as well. I would like to turn our last few minutes just, and, and the reason why I turn it to our last few minutes is I don't want to have I don't want to watch Shane gloat as much as I'm about to do that. But as we we as I alluded to earlier, the the um, the power rankings are out. The in the, the, NFL? Uh, the 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 points so the, yeah. are out. And who is the best team in the NFL for? to be it is the new england Pat- patriots yeah. now their power ranking is about nine so the way you think about a power ranking is essentially on a neutral field against an average team this is how many points they're they're supposed to win by so nine points the next best team is about four and a half wow and uh so that is enormous yeah i mean I, they're forecasting I, about know, 12 wins that's right i mean and, and nobody wants to hear it uh from me but i mean i i think it's it is impressive that they obviously win into the offseason as super bowl champions um, you know, and and manage to somehow also be one of the biggest 
movers in, in, in the offseason, signing Brandon Cooks and, and, and a couple other, like, real, you know, Stephen Gilmore. I mean, but they, how is this possible? Yeah, I mean, they're I always at the how, bottom of the draft how year they, after year. How I don't is it know that they how do this? the rest of the league has not at least somewhat caught up to them. How are they just owning this situation uh, so completely? And so do you think it's do you think it's accurate? I mean, one of the things that we've talked yeah, about is probably uh, is, not. I is mean, the forty year old the forty year old quarterback Brady will be yeah. forty, and 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 that seems to put a lot of eggs in this forecast in the Brady back. Basket. That's true, though. I mean, again, they were. I, you know, I know you can. Yes, I mean obviously they're they're kind of betting on Brady still being at least above average, like uh, in, 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 above in, average, in right? his in his forty age forty one season yeah. uh, or age forty season. Um, I mean they do have, I mean they have the luxury again, which is pretty amazing, of having obviously this Hall of Fame quarterback. The backup is considered at least among uh, across the league as an above average quarterback as well. I right. mean certainly not at that stature, right. but they they have the luxury of actually having a backup plan. For a quarterback that's actually above average, and I mean, how many? You know, I mean, there's a lot of fans out there of many football teams that would kill for one above average quarterback on their like team. The Jets, that, uh, you, yeah, I mean, yep. the Jets have played for decades without an above average quarterback. Um, so the the Pats heard yeah. about, and uh, the Pats have too. They're 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 plus four seventy five, which means if you bet if you bet a hundred dollars on the Pats to win the Super Bowl, you win four seventy five dollars. That puts so them it, about about seventeen percent probability. Yeah. Now, who do you think is next? Uh, for the Super Bowl, for the Super Bowl, um, well, we I mean, I'm not going to guess. So let's not, not gonna... wax ecstatic here. What, who do you think is next? Dallas, Dallas, yes, Dallas is about one. New in York, 10. New York Giants as well. Um, I think you just are scared of the Giants. I uh, well, of course, they're, I the, they're, 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 they're literally the only team that can beat the Patriots. So <laughs> it's an irrational fear. It's irrational fear as a New Yorker. I feel like it's an empirical fear. But, yeah, uh, empirically well, motivated. The fear. Jets don't scare you, huh? No, <laughs> Jets no, are, of course, no, are my team. No, but nobody um, in the NFC, uh, AFC East, scares scares, scares it, it me scares, at this point. It scares us. So, no. so, so we do have uh, football. Always seems to creep in, but I'm particularly interested in odds, and those seem yeah. to come out in the power rankings, and we'll see how those so things is, change. Is, is Dallas the highest uh, next time? Was yeah, they're next highest, okay. but there's lots of clumping. Oh, the, the yeah. thing is, once you get after number one, it clumps mightily yeah. from two through six with mm-hmm. Pittsburgh with a whole bunch of teams, Green Bay, etc. And, and yeah. I think last year we saw a lot of clumping as well with 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 New England standing out on top, and this. Year. We have a, a lot of clumping also yeah. with at the bottom also is where you have the extremes. The, the Browns, the Jets, the Niners are supposed to be bad again. There'll be some surprises. Those will definitely change. But we've come to our conclusion of our two-hour show. I'd like to thank our sound engineer, Daniel Bruno, our producer, Matt Johnson. This has been another edition of the Wharton Moneyball on Sirius XM. This has been a great show. I've enjoyed hosting it this morning. We look forward to the return of our colleagues next week. Until then, enjoy your statistics, enjoy your supports.